Father, what a delight it is to gather with your people today and to, to declare that you are worthy, that Jesus is worthy. We pray that you would indeed hear our praise today and be honored and glorified in it. We pray as well that you would speak to us by your spirit who moves among us, that you would speak to us through your word, by your spirit, help us to be convicted, encouraged, and changed more into the likeness of your son today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go and have a seat. After what we've lived through the last three years, I think it's going to be a long time before any of us need to be convinced that we were made for human contact and community. It became extremely obvious how much we need other people in our lives. But one thing that we didn't necessarily solve over this time is what to do with our loneliness. Because there are still many times in life when we are alone or isolated or feel lonely. And it's not just single, unmarried, divorced, or widowed people who feel this. Seniors can feel this, this quite isolation often. Huge numbers of children today feel lonely. Dig deeper, and even many married people, sadly, feel lonely within their marriage, maybe even as lonely as they've ever felt. But I think singles do usually feel this more acutely than others. When they sit down to eat a meal with nobody else around the table, when yet another date goes poorly, or when they give up on dating altogether, when they attend the upteenth wedding or baby shower for someone else, when a friend moves away, when a close family member passes away, when a widow remembers a spouse's birthday or an anniversary. Actress Anne Hathaway once said that loneliness is my least favorite thing about life. The thing that I'm most worried about is just being alone without anybody to care for or someone who will care for me. I'm sure that that resonates with some of you today. So, what should we do with our loneliness? What I want us to do today is to seek out wisdom from God's word on this. Today, we'll be specifically geared towards singles, but can easily apply to everyone here. We will all be lonely at times. And God has placed us in places to help care for others. So I invite you to turn with me as we start to Psalm 68. So in your Bibles, or you can grab one from the seats in front of you, Psalm 68 to begin. We are very skilled at lying to ourselves. So it's important to be reminded of the truth often. And one of the most common lies we tell ourselves, especially if we're single, is that we are alone. But if you're a Christian, that could not be further from the truth. You are not alone. 
But the truth of our non-isolation doesn't actually begin with other people or fellow believers. It begins with the nature and character of God. Caitlin Ludka says, The Lord himself sees to it that his children are never left alone. Each member of the Trinity has been expressly promised to believers for all of eternity. Now think about that. Okay, God the Father promised. It is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. God the Son promised. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And he promised God the Spirit, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. And so, Ludka continues, there is no greater source of fulfillment and joy than that of the presence and company of the Lord. While God has given us the comfort of dwelling with our brothers and sisters in Christ, it is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit who have been, are, and will always be the truest and most faithful companion. Now, I think a couple key verses in Psalm 68 are going to reinforce this point for us today. But first, I'll give you the truth I think God's Word teaches us actually again and again. And that's that solitary believers, solitary believers are specially cared for by God. Solitary believers are cared for by God in a special way, specially cared for by God. You can say that the more alone we are on a human level, the closer God appears to draw to us. And Psalm 68 is this psalm about God in his mighty power, like a warrior scattering his enemies. It starts out in verse 1, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. And it ends in uh, verses 34 and 35, if I can turn the page, ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the skies, Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. But what inclines God to act like this in his power? It's actually his tender, gentle love. Look at verse 5 with me. This is where we're going to dwell for a bit. It says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. So he's the father of the fatherless. He's the protector of widows. The, you could say the parentless and the spouseless. Those who have experienced great loss. The familyless. When God sees his people like this being hurt or abused, he arises in ferocious might. And then verse 6 broadens his protective care out to any of his people who are solitary. Look at verse 6. It says, God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. You say verse 5 is who he is, and verse 6 is a prime example of what he does. God takes a a special interest in looking out for and caring for solitary believers. Now, believe it or not, the Bible doesn't actually talk about loneliness a lot. One of the only mentions 
of anyone saying they feel lonely is in Psalm 26 or 25:16 where David prays turn to me and be gracious to me for I am lonely and afflicted. So where does he turn to in his loneliness? To the Lord. He seeks his grace. Be gracious to me. And I wonder who are you turning to first? In your loneliness, to friends who may fail you and often do, to family members who frequently disappoint, to social media, just doom scrolling Instagram, TikTok, to Netflix or YouTube, to gaming, to food or drink or substances, to to something more sinister. There are many things we may look to in order to to calm or numb the ache in our hearts. While the God who loves us more than any family ever could is right beside us, wanting to heal us and satisfy us and be with us. Seek him, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart. Psalm 68 says that God has a home of his own, a holy habitation, far above and set apart from us. And yet he reaches down into our world, it says, to to settle the solitary in a home. God settles the solitary in a home. What home? Is this saying that God places people into nuclear families? Maybe he plays matchmaker and to make sure that single people get married one day. But no, it it doesn't say any of that. I mean, marriage could indeed be one method he uses, but it more simply says that he gives a home or a family to those who are on their own. Ultimately, he will settle us all into his home, his own home, into his heavenly, holy habitation. But even now, with or without a physical home or natural family, God places his people into communities of his people, which are very much meant to behave like a family. And this can be comforting, This can also be challenging when we realize that we're the family that God settles people into. We're the homes that he settles them in. Which means that I think we need to reframe how we view single believers in the church. We've seen some of this already, but singles are are whole people who are beloved by God the Father, have equal claim to the blood of Christ, and are given equal measure to the Holy Spirit, which means they are not cursed. They are deeply blessed by God. A couple weeks ago, I quoted Christopher Yuan, who said that what Christian singles get more than anything else in the church is pity. But Christian singles don't need pity, they need love. And here's the thing, they have love. God Almighty loves them and has their back. 
and God places us in each other's lives in order to be to love and be loved by one another. They are haves, not have-nots. You have them, they have you, and vice versa. See, solitary believers are specially cared for by God, being welcomed into his great family. Solitary believers are specially cared for by God, being welcomed into his great family. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 12? You can turn over there with me. Matthew 12, we read this a couple weeks ago. And at the end of the chapter... In verse 46 to 48 or 50, we'll be reading. But one day while Jesus was busy teaching his disciples, he was interrupted. Verse 46 says, while he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. In Mark's parallel account of this story, we're told that his family came to seize him to grab him and bring him home because they thought he had lost his mind. Sounds like what most families do, right? They worry that you've lost your mind, so they call you up to set you straight. Verse 48. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who, is, who are my brothers. And, or sorry, he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? So we might think that Jesus sounds disrespectful here, but that's actually reading into this. That's making assumptions of the text. We don't know Jesus' tone of voice, but he wouldn't have dishonored his mother. And I'm sure he likely did go and talk to his family soon after this, calming their fears. But what happens after wasn't nearly as important as what he said now. In verse 49, stretching out his hands toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And with these shocking words, Jesus redefined family for his disciples. If you follow Jesus, doing God's will, you are part of Jesus' family now. And not just distant cousins, thrice removed. No, immediate family members were directly related to Christ and thus also related to each other. And this isn't just any family. It's the greatest family to ever exist. Your family by new birth is superior to your family by natural birth. It says, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mothers. Again, Jesus wasn't putting down his natural family. He was lifting up his followers, elevating them beyond what they could have ever imagined. And it's worth asking, what does it mean to be family? What does that really mean? Think of your parents your kids, your siblings, etc. What makes you family with them? I think there are three things in particular. One, you come from the same background. Okay, you, you grew up surrounded them by them likely. You, you generally have the same ethnic background or ancestors. Two, you share the same blood. 
at least for biological family. There is a genetic link between you, causing you to often look or act alike. And three, you honor the same bond, a special bond of love. And this includes family who are related by marriage or by adoption. You love each other, and you're committed to being there for each other. As I wrote this sermon, one of my brothers called because his car battery died. And my wife jumped in our car to go help him out. That's what family does. Right? We look out for each other. So family comes from the same background, shares the same blood, and honors the same bond. Then we can ask, does the family of God reflect these same commonalities? Do we come from the same background? Well, in some ways, no, but in many ways, yes. We come from the same place. We were all once separated from God by sin, enemies of his kingdom, only to be brought near, forgiven, and adopted into his family. Do we share the same blood? Absolutely we do. The blood of Christ is what unites us. And do we honor the same bond? Yes. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. God has bound us together with a common love, a common goal, and a common destiny. But is this family of God really superior to our own families? You might be skeptical of this. But I believe Scripture makes the case that, yes, the family of God is greater than flesh. This is not just sentimental thought. This is solid theological truth. First, it's not just ethnicity or ancestry that unites us, but the gospel, the greatest truth ever told. We are not united by just our skin or by genetics, but on a spiritual heart level. Romans 5 says believers live by the Spirit, not by flesh, since we are adopted by God. Second, the blood of Christ runs thicker than the blood of kin. The blood of Christ runs thicker than the blood of kin. When we come to Christ... He instantly becomes the most important thing about us. So, when we share the most important part of us with others, that's common ground above all other common grounds. And many of you would have grown up in Christian homes. And if you did, you actually shared a double bond with your immediate family members. You weren't just brothers and sisters by, by natural. You were brothers and sisters in Christ. So you might not notice how special sharing a love for Christ is. But for those of you who came to Christ later, or your family doesn't share your faith, you know how when you came to Christ, you instantly shared a bond with other believers that surpassed anything that you had with your family of origin. Some of you actually lost your family because of that. So the blood of Christ runs thicker than the blood of kin. And third, all our natural family bonds eventually come to an end. 
kids grow up and move out, maybe even move far away from their parents. Conflicts, dysfunction, estrangements tragically distance many family members. New marriages form new primary family units, which then follow the same life cycles. Parents and grandparents grow older and then die. So do spouses and siblings. Meanwhile, the family of God is eternal. It's the family that lasts forever. Even death will not permanently separate us from one another. Jesus said in Mark 10 that anyone who leaves or loses their earthly family for his sake will receive a hundredfold family members, both now and in eternity. As Sam Albury says, Following Christ means an abundance of spiritual family. Nature may have given us only one mother and one father. The gospel gives us far more. So yes, the family of faith is eternally greater than our families of flesh. Now I need to clarify one thing here for those with families right now. Just because God's family is greater and superior to our earthly families doesn't mean our responsibilities fall in that same sequence or priority. Scripture's clear that we do have legitimate and high obligations to our families. So you have greater responsibilities to your spouse or children or parents than you do to your fellow church members. So my point is not to say that you should prioritize the church over your family. It's only to say that your church family is a great, beautiful, vital family of its own. And it will supersede our natural families. And today, I want to stress the fact that if you're single... You are still surrounded by family. And as long as you stay rooted in a church community, you will always have family. Just stop and and consider the fact that, that God calls you son or daughter. Or that Jesus calls you brother or sister. That's astounding. In Hebrews 2, 10 and 11, it says, For it was fitting that he, that's Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Like, let that sink in. Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother. Or sister. In spite of all the ways you've turned your back on him and broken his heart, he is not ashamed of you. You're his, your family to him now. And we can know how much he loves us because of what he did to save us. 
Jesus came to earth and, and lived life as a single man that was often isolated and lonely. In fact, turn over to Isaiah 53 with me. A very familiar passage, Isaiah 53. I'm not going to read it all for you. But as you get there, just run your eyes over these verses. Okay, where Jesus was foreseen by the prophet Isaiah to be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, oppressed, afflicted, taken away, and cut off. On the cross, Jesus died alone, utterly forsaken, which means, by the way, that he can empathize with your loneliness. No one has ever experienced the supreme depths of loneliness that Jesus did. But it was in those moments, as we see here, it's in those moments that he was expressing the deepest love for us he could and securing our forgiveness and our forever place in the family of God. In verse 10, it's an often overlooked verse in Isaiah 53. Look at it. It says, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So we ask then, how could an unmarried, celibate man have offspring? Well, he would have a, a different kind of offspring. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, or of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So that's the question. Is have you received him? Have you believed in Jesus' name? If not, you can today can reject your sin and receive your Savior? And if you have done this, are you thankful that you're a child of God today? That you're part of Jesus' family? And since we share Christ, you're my family too now. You're not my distant relatives. You're my brothers and sisters as Sam Albury says, those who would otherwise be alone are grafted into the community of life of God's people. When God draws people to himself, he draws them to one another as well. The people of Jesus Christ are to be family. And here's the thing. We're not just supposed to treat each other like we would family, but we're meant to build and grow this family together. How do we do this? Well, for one, we do it through evangelism and outreach, which is essentially inviting people to join our family through Jesus. In the beginning, humanity was given or commissioned with a mandate to multiply God's image bearers, and that was through marriage and procreation. But that mandate ultimately finds its fulfillment in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, as we go and make disciples of all mankind, multiplying God's restored image bearers, bringing new birth. Through the gospel, 
Singles get to play just as major a part in God's mission on earth. Yes, there can be great joys in marriage or parenthood that you might forego, but God's word says that there is no greater joy than to help others walk in the truth. No greater joy. We also build up the family of God through discipleship, helping others grow in faith. Think of the Apostle Paul with Timothy or Titus, who he called his true sons in the faith. It wasn't like, he's like a son to me. It was, he is a true son to me. And Paul was a single man. But God gave him family anyway. And this, the same can happen to us today. Fellow believers can become as close as or closer than kin. Single believers, or single brothers and sisters, you can have true sons and true daughters in the faith. You really can. Either by leading them to the Lord or discipling them in the Lord. And many of you serve as Sunday school teachers and nursery workers and fusion youth leaders and small group leaders. And, and some of those kids or those people around you can grow to become precious souls and relationships for you. The church should be a place of, of gospel fellowship for singles. A place that, to build lasting bonds of, of friendship and partnership in making disciples. And finally, we can build up the family of God together through loving one another, like family does. Right? Two practical ways we can love are serving and showing hospitality. Families are, are there for each other in need, like we talked about. They, they care about how one another is doing. And the family of God can do likewise. We can be the, our go-to people for each other. When there's a car that breaks down, or furniture to move, or bills to pay that we can't pay, or, or kids that need watched, or exams that need tutored for, or sorrows to be shared, or meals to be made, or whatever needs arise, we should be able to run to the family of God and find people who will be there for us. And likewise, we can be the people who are there running to serve those in need among us. Singles, you have gifts and freedom that God has given you to serve others. You have plenty to offer, even in a church that's filled with families. And families, you have gifts and opportunities that God has given you to serve others as well. So don't ignore that. And then hospitality. Hospitality is one of the most important ways that we can love and serve each other. Welcoming each other into our lives, whatever they look like. If you're reading along with us in Sam Albury's Seven Myths About Singleness book, he gives all kinds of creative ideas in chapter four about what this can look like. If you're single, but you want to see, but you see the, the family of God as your closest family, it will make you want to spend time together with your family members. And not just with other singles, though those relationships are valuable too. There are plenty of ways that you can creatively show hospitality to other believers, inviting others into your space, even if it's not a home, hosting a small group, 
going and preparing a meal at a family's home, visiting lonely seniors or shut-ins, and much more. Paige Benton Brown says that when a nice old lady asked her once, are you seeing anyone special? She joked, sure, I see you, and you're special. (laughs) But then she more seriously explains, singleness is never carte blanche for selfishness. A spouse is not a sufficient countermeasure for self. The gospel is the only antidote for egocentricity. Christ did not come simply to save us from our sins. He came to save us from ourselves. And he most often rescues us from us through relationships, all kinds of relationships. Christian growth mandates relational richness. Christian growth mandates relational richness. If you're married or part of a family, hospitality may be easier for you. But it's also important that we don't only gravitate towards people just like us. Couples tend to invite other couples over. Parents with kids invite others with kids. But singles around you have things to offer that your family needs, and vice versa. Sam Albury advises that this is the way God designed it to be. The physical and spiritual families we belong to need each other. The boundary of your family life needs to be porous for your family's own good. So, who is welcome around your table? Most of us would be quick to answer, anyone. But then ask, who has actually been welcomed around your table? When my wife and I got married, we found that our lifestyle dramatically changed. And it was so natural to gravitate toward other young couples and to stop associating as much with non-married young adults. It took me years to be convicted about the hurt that we unintentionally yet undoubtedly caused our single friends. Marriage should never end good, godly friendships. And wherever we are in life should never be an excuse to not love one another. So may we be quick with invitations to enter our home life. Not just for formal meals, but also for just hanging out even just doing nothing together. May we listen well to people, learn from them. May we celebrate holidays together, go on vacations together. May we give our kids, if you have kids, lots of spiritual uncles and aunts, even fathers and mothers. Any more than just you. May we learn to do life together as the great family of God. Now, some of you will feel that this doesn't make up for not having family here and now. You'd say that I'd still rather have 
a spouse or kids. I'm not going to fault you for that. Those are good, desirable blessings from the Lord. But I will ask you, do you trust the Lord? Do you trust the Lord? Because I'm, I'm going to end by sharing a promise of his that you will have to decide whether or not you believe or trust to be true. The point I think we'll see is that solitary believers are specially cared for by God being promised blessings even better than family. All right, single, faithful, single believers are promised blessings even better than the blessings of family, which is good news because we were made for much more than just family. But flip over like one page with me to Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56, 1 to 5. And we're going to take a look at this prophecy here. Some of it's going to sound cryptic, like a lot of prophecy often does. But essentially, Isaiah is looking ahead to when God's salvation comes and promising that those who might seem like outsiders or outcasts now will be particularly blessed by the Lord. In verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now there's the eunuchs again. Not exactly equivalent to single people, but I believe the principle definitely translates. These are are faithful, single, sexually celibate people without physical spouse or progeny. It would be natural for them to feel dry. Like it says in verse 3, Behold, I'm a dry tree, not producing life. But get a load of that promise again from the Lord. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose to, the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my walls and within my, within my, in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. To put it simply, those without offspring are promised a legacy in God's house, which is even greater than the greatest legacy physical children could ever give. I will give him my house and within my walls a monument and a name. They're given a monument. They will be remembered. And they're given a name, an identity that lasts forever. Like, remember, like if you're single and you die childless, it's like your family name ends with you. But not if you're part of God's family. It goes on. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. 
springs another encounter with Jesus to mind from Luke 11. When a, a woman listening to Christ teach was so moved that she called out, yelled out, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. In other words, Mary, the mother of Jesus, must have been so blessed to be Jesus' mom. But Jesus responded in a surprising way. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Obedient believers, whether mothers or not, married or not, are the most blessed people in existence. (laughs) They're even better off than the very mother of God's own son. And so, as John Piper says, take a deep breath and reorder your world. We could all stand to do some reordering. What is really considered blessed in the long run? Blessed are the the young couples in love. Blessed are the newlyweds. Blessed are the new parents. Blessed are the the couples celebrating their silver or golden anniversaries. Blessed are those with so many grandkids, like such wonderful legacies all around. Or rather, blessed are those who faithfully follow the Lord, whatever their circumstances. Blessed, too, are the fatherless. The widows, the childless, the singles, the lonely. Question your life's aspirations. Like, what matters most? I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. I was recently reminded of a a blog written in the middle of 2020 by a pastor named Steve DeWitt. And he was reflecting on how the pandemic of disease caused a pandemic of loneliness among people. And he then reflected on how he had been single well into his 40s before he got married. And how he felt the ache of loneliness within both seasons of life. And that was like a a constant companion to him. And he appealed to to us all as someone who had lived a long time as both single and married, without children and with children, to see loneliness as a kind of gift from God. Like hunger that urges us to eat. Loneliness can drive us out of self-centeredness and into love. And this is how he concludes. When you are alone and lonely, it is easy to believe that a spouse or family or church family will drive loneliness away. The common graces of marriage, family, sex, and children are very helpful in the daily struggle. Yet even the best moments of marriage and parenting and friendship always lack something. The moment of harmony passes too quickly. The warm feelings of care slip away. Human relationships ebb and flow. Even at their best, we sense that something is missing. 
For this we should rejoice. We should be glad to realize that the best of this life leaves us wanting something more, longer, and better. As wonderful as these earthly gifts are, the fact that they don't satisfy makes God's promises to fully satisfy us forever even more astounding. And catch this end. Every loneliness on earth is an internal confirmation that our greatest relational joys lie ahead of us. Absence should make the heart look forward. Absence should make the heart look forward. So if you're on your own, that does not mean you are alone. But even when we feel lonely, may that lead our hearts to look forward expectantly. The best is yet to come. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you continue to work in our hearts and may we find our greatest treasure in you alone today. May we reorder our world as necessary. Our priorities, our aspirations, our dreams. Would you bring them in alignment with your will? We ask for your sake and your name. In Jesus' name. Amen.